Good morning. You guys feel like your hearts are prepared to hear from Jesus this morning? Yeah, like you're like, you're ready to hear, hear, hear God's word this morning and take it into our hearts and let it rest there and see what, what the Lord plants in us. You guys ready for that? Bring it. Bring it. All right. Well, that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to dig into God's word. We're in a series that we call Wrecked. Um, I got some feedback on this that uh, somebody said, I don't know if I like the sermon title or the series Wrecked because, you know, God doesn't wreck things. He's always about taking things that have been wrecked and making them new. And so I was like, uh, well, it's more of a cultural term, wrecked. You know, it means like, like ruined for anything less than something really amazing, right? When you go to the big concerts with all the sounds and lights, you're just wrecked for kind of a lousy halfway concert, right? When you go to all out, when you're in all out worship and you're just, you know, giving everything to Jesus, you get wrecked for anything less than that. So that's what this series is all about is being wrecked for anything less than everything that the Holy Spirit has for you. Being wrecked for anything less than a life of adventure with God that is like no other. And so we've been talking about this from the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking at uh, the book of Acts chapter 4 and 5. So if you want to open your Bibles uh, there, we are going to dive into the Word. But first, as you're getting there, a story. But first, a story. It sounds like one of those read-along-with-me-in-your-book type things, right? Hey, are you guys awake this morning? Okay, there you are. I was like, I see bodies, but I don't hear them. Like, we're all got a cougar hangover, I guess, um, which is, yeah, which is different than other kind of cougars. They're different, different kind of hangovers. It's the football game. Anyway, so my story. I digress. My story, um, how many of you guys love Costco? I mean, I mean, I mean come on, let's just like, I mean, okay, so if, how many of you love Jesus? Okay. And how many of you love Costco? That's, right. that's, that's appropriate right there. Okay, that's, that's appropriate. Yeah, I, I, I do love going to Costco. Um, I've admitted this before. I am a sample junkie. It's embarrassing to go to Costco with me because I tend to go around again. I have been known to change shirts with my son on, on a time or two to get an extra sample. Uh, recently, though, we went to Costco, and one of the things that we do, because it is so far away for us, is we go down to Costco, and you get there, and you have to eat. So, Costco pizza, anyone? Mm-hmm. Hot dog. $2 of just a miracle, right? It's a $2 miracle, a foot-long piece of mystery meat wrapped in an amazing bun with as much sauerkraut and onions as you can get on there, right? And it's like you have to balance that thing. Love those things. But I can't eat any of them anymore. And many of you know this about me. I am what we call a glutard, right? It is, it is my primary failing in life is that I can no longer eat the food source that is right around us at all times. My world is just, I'm swimming in poison at all times because I am allergic to gluten. So I can no longer eat this stuff. So a few months ago, we saw in the Costco magazine that lo and behold, a new salad was coming to Costco and it was gluten-free. And I was so excited. This gluten-free salad, the Costco Al Pastor salad. Look, my name is right in it. It's, it's for the pastor. This salad is for me. So, of course, I had to get this thing, right? So, we go down, and I'm just anticipating it the whole way down. The kids are like, oh, I'm getting cheese pizza. I'm like, why cheese pizza? You got to put stuff on it. It's like you're not even getting a good value for your money. At least pick the things off and give them to me. And so, they're getting the pizza, and Heidi's thinking about this, and I'm thinking, and I'm going to get this salad. I'm so excited. So, we go, we do our shopping. 
the kids are good, so they get their treat, and we go through line, we get our food, and here's the salad. I mean, it is glorious. It's, it is literally glowing with heaven. And I take the salad to my table, I sit down, and I open that thing up. You guys even know what al pastor is? It is Spanish pork, or Mexican pork, that is marinated in spices, and then cooked really slowly over an open flame, like a gyro meat thing, it sits there and spins, with a pineapple on top of it. Did you hear the gasp in the room when I said there was a pineapple on top? I mean, it's so good. So I get this thing, I open it up, and I start eating, and I'm just pounding this thing. Oh, and I'm like, ah. At first, I'm really excited. And then the luster kind of wears off. I'm like, oh, this isn't that good. And I get about halfway through it, and I'm like, there's just something really wrong with this salad. They did something. This is, maybe is it old? What happened? And I look at the label, and I notice on the label, it says, does not contain meat. It has a plant-based protein. What is a plant-based protein? I was just like felt, I was like lied to, right? It said al pastor, which is meat, it's pork, and it's a plant-based protein. It was fake meat. It's like worse than fake news, way worse than fake news. Fake meat. I felt so lied to. It was horrible. And you know what? I realize this is something you need to know about me. Things that I really, really don't like in life is when one thing pretends to be another. You're like, mm-hmm, yeah. All right, next slide. Let me show you this next slide because there's a lot of things that are this way in life, like tofu. Make tofu taste like chicken. Okay, let's just all say this together. Not chicken, okay? I don't have a problem with eating tofu. With people eating tofu, I have a problem personally with eating tofu. They also make dashboards out of that stuff. I don't understand how you can eat both, but anyway, that's... And then, oh, that's a terrible picture. Spaghetti squash? Not spaghetti. It's a lie. It is a squash posing as spaghetti, okay? Now, you just say it's squash with spaghetti sauce. It's, it's what it is, and it's okay, but not spaghetti. And then, so I don't know if your mom ever did this, but we used to get huge zucchinis in Alaska when I was growing up, huge. And I'm doing this, and I'm not lying. They were this big. And she would turn them into everything. So we had zucchini spaghetti, zucchini lasagna, but she also made zucchini pineapple. Yeah, you take the zucchini and you put pineapple juice in it and soak it, and it becomes zucchini pineapple. Not pineapple. It's a lie. It does taste like pineapple, but it is not pineapple. So it's just vegetables soaked in juice. Why? I don't know. My whole point in all of this, you're like, this is, yeah, you, you guys are all like shaking your head. No, that's just not right. My whole point in this is this word that I think the Lord has for us this morning, which is integrity. It's about integrity. It's about being who we really are on the inside and on the outside at church on Sunday and at work on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and maybe Friday and Saturday, and depending on how long you work. It's about being what we say we are. If you are a zucchini, be a zucchini. If you are a squash, be a squash. Be a squash with spaghetti sauce, but don't play at being spaghetti, right? And if you are plant-based protein, just let me know. I will love you still, but I won't eat you. It made my stomach feel funny. It's integrity, okay? This is about integrity. The word integrity is kind of bandied about a lot in churches, especially. You know, we, we, like, integrity means that you don't sin. Integrity means that, that you, don't, uh, you don't fall all the time, that you are who you say you are. It's a word that we use in, in engineering for bridges, you know? That means that all the pieces come together, and they are whole, and they are strong, and that the pieces support one another, 
That's what integrity is in bridge building. And last night I was laying in bed thinking about a bridge being built and like imagining, you know, like this one guy, like, I think maybe I'll use a pretzel for this part and how that whole pretzel would just collapse the whole bridge. That's not integrity. It's not the right parts in the right place. It's not what it says it is. Integrity for people is about being whole and not split. So we got this signs out front. Did you guys notice our signs this morning, the new signs and in the new bulletin that all came out today that we are about wholeheartedly loving Jesus. Heart, soul, mind, strength. The insides and the outsides. From the deepest parts of our lives, from the bottom of the iceberg, which we'll talk about later, we, the whole self, wholeheartedly able to love Jesus. That's a picture of integrity. All of ourselves, not just parts. Now, they use the word split in psychology actually to talk about how we divide our lives. We compartmentalize our lives and we become split. We have a, a persona at work. We have a persona at home. Some of us are one way at home and another way when we go to the restaurant because people are looking at us. Children experience this all the time. Children are the ones that see it the quickest. They know when dad is not being the same person at the restaurant that he is at home. And many of us have been harmed by this. Some of us are a different person at church than we are at work or at home. Integrity is not being split or compartmentalized. That There is no sacred place and secular place. There is no um, holy place and unholy place. It is all holy, it is all sacred, and it is all of us all the time worshiping Jesus. That is a picture of integrity. Our outward behavior flows from what is inside of us. It's the picture of integrity. On, we come to church and we worship and we lift our hands, and then Monday, what are we when we go to church or go to work? You know, a lot of people experience Christians as hypocrites, Right? Is the primary, the primary critique of the church. Oh, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. I come to church, they're really nice, but when I see them on Monday, they're just nasty people. I don't even want to be around them. I see them at church, they're lifting their hands, and then I see them at McDonald's shouting at the person behind the counter for messing up my order. That's just not good. That's, not, that's a hypocrite, and it's not integrity. What we need to see today is that what is in us flows out. It leaks from our lives. Who we are on the inside is who we really are on the outside, no matter what we project to the world. It will leak. If you are greedy inside, you will hold tight to everything that you have. If you are judgy, you will be critical of everybody around you. If you are lusty in the terms of men and women, you will see people as objects. It's just the way it works. I want you to know this morning that Jesus is more concerned about what's inside than what's outside. That Jesus is more concerned with the interior of your life than the outward behaviors. Now, he's, I'm not saying to you that you can go run around and just do whatever the heck you want as long as the inside's good, because what's inside flows to the outside. But Jesus is most concerned with, with what's inside. His primary critique about people that were religious leaders in his century was that they were whitewashed tombs, right? On the outside, it was beautiful and white, and on the inside, it was full of death, he says, you're just a cup that's been washed on the outside. If you haven't cleaned the inside, what good is it, right? That's what Jesus talks about. He even says things like, look, I don't care if you haven't committed adultery. If you have looked at a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery with her. I don't think, you, like, I'm not a murderer, Jesus. If you've held anger in your heart against another man, you have murdered him in your heart. What is on the inside is more important than what is on the outside. 
That is the heart of what we're going to hear from the story in Acts today. It is the heart of what the apostles are trying to bring to our attention. It's the heart of what Luke, the author of the book of Acts, was trying to tell the early church and people all down through the centuries. What is most important to Jesus is not what the church looks like on the outside, how generous and how kind and how lovely it is, but what it is on the inside that matters most. So we're going to look at a text that is very, very controversial. It's very difficult. And some of us have read this passage and we just stopped reading the Bible. Some people have walked away from church over a passage like this because it, is, it doesn't seem to line up with our view of God. Okay, It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And we're going to read it uh, this morning. I want to read first, though, from chapter 4, verse 32. And then I'm going to read through verse 6 in chapter 5. You guys ready with me? Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. They were wholehearted together. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Basically, that's like this sign. It's like, okay, here you go, apostles. Do whatever, whatever needs to be done with this. This is yours and it's no longer mine, okay? Chapter five. But, usually one of my favorite words in the whole Bible, but right now it's not a very good word. But, a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it sold, was it not I just lost my place. Was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose up and they wrapped him up and they carried him out and buried him. The text goes on. They actually ask his wife, Sapphira, the same question. Did you, is this how much you sold it for? Yes, that's how much we sold it for. Why are you lying? And she falls down dead and breathes her last. This, ladies and gentlemen, is our new church growth plan. Come to church. God might strike you dead. Our people are drop-dead gorgeous. You should come to church. Not everyone dies every week. Come see what'll happen, right? If this happened today, there would be a serious murder investigation, wouldn't there? Can you imagine? You're like, I sold my house and I'm going to give it to the church. And then you come and you come to the church council, which there are, are, are four or five of us together sitting in the upper room up over there and we're having our meeting and you come in and I'm giving you these proceeds and you die at the end of that meeting. We're all going to jail. I mean, bottom line, we're all going to jail. But here, something else happens entirely. It's a tough passage. I wanted to avoid it. I was told if I avoided it, I would be a chicken. So I decided to preach it on Labor Day. Or is this Labor Day? Labor Day weekend when nobody would be here? Yeah. 
It's difficult to explain how good God is and how God is involved in this passage. Scholars since the second century have been trying to explain this away, trying to make an excuse for God in this passage. And I think we get caught up in this why, how has this happened? How can a good God kill two people in the midst of this? They're, they're giving money. Why, why did, I mean, is giving, giving was good, right? They gave money. How, why did they die? And it just makes God look really bad, and we don't want God to look bad. So we try to explain it away. But I think getting caught up in those explanations actually draws us away from the point of the passage. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you, like, if you were just really troubled by this whole death thing, could you just, like, maybe just lay that at the feet of Jesus for a moment? Because whenever we get confused about a passage, we need to look at Jesus, right? If you have seen me, It's a little confusing, but we're going to lay our concerns down at his feet, and we're going to see what God is saying through this text. See if I can get this on. All right, can you hear me again? All right, all the people at home didn't get that awesome explanation, so I'll just say it again. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Don't be confused. Don't be confused. So, so Jesus, right now, we just submit ourselves to you in this text, and we ask that you would teach us what you have to teach us this morning. And God, may we be wholehearted for you when we walk from this place. May we give you all that we are in your name. Amen. So I just want to make two quick points about this text, just to help you lay this and keep this at Jesus' feet. First of all, it's not normal what happened in Acts chapter 5. Nowhere else in the New Testament does it happen in the same way. It is just not the normative experience of church. This is not their church growth method. It is not, our people are drop-dead gorgeous. You know, they're good-looking, but they aren't dying all the time. I don't know, maybe we are, actually, we are all dying, right? We're all traveling toward a box one way or another. But it's not normative that God just strikes people dead. So this isn't a normal behavior. Secondly, it is very much against the nature of who Jesus is. In Luke chapter 9, and you need to know this, Luke and Acts are two books that are, it's, it's part one and part two, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke is all about the gospel. It's about who Jesus is and what he did. Acts is all about what happened after Jesus ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit came. And so these two books are tied. And when they use words and when they use concepts, they're flowing from one to the other. So we can look back and forth. So in the book of Luke, Jesus is out and he's preaching and he sends people, his disciples into a town and the town rejects him. The town says, we don't want him to come here. And they're like, Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven on them? And Jesus says, you don't get it. The Son of Man has not come to destroy lives. He says, this one says, but he turned and he rebuked them. And some have added to the text, actually, kind of what his rebuke would mean. He's like, his rebuke is, I didn't come to kill people. I came to save them and to rescue them. So it is not normative in the New Testament, and it is against Jesus' whole message. So I think we can still safely take this concern and lay it at Jesus' feet and move forward and say, what is the text trying to teach us? The point of the text comes down to this. God cares about what's happening beneath the surface of your life. God is not looking from you a performance. 
That came out weird. God is not looking for a performance from you. He wants the truth. The, this book of Psalms, David says, you know, you desire truth from the inward heart, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. You do not despise. God is looking from truth, worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. So let's look at a little bit closer. Now, first point is this, and it's almost an aside. There is no such thing as a perfect church. It's the first thing I think that Luke is trying to show us. Up to this point in the book of Acts, what have we seen? Signs and wonders and miracles and crazy stuff happening left and right. Every time they end a chapter and it's like, and 3,000 people came to faith, no big deal. And 5,000 people came to faith, no big deal. And they were in prison and the prison doors were open and they walked out, no big deal. I mean, everything that's going on in this church is awesome. They are killing it. Yeah? It is the perfect church until we get to Acts chapter 5. You know what happened? This, this is actually like about the first five or six weeks of the church. First five or six weeks of the church. For the first five or six weeks of the church, the church is perfect. If you're new with us and you have come less than five times, <laughs> Sherry is already laughing. She knows where this is going. In, in the next few weeks, I will probably tick you off. In the next few weeks, somebody will probably offend you. In the next few weeks, somebody will probably hurt your feelings. If you stay in this church for more than a year or two years, you will probably, probably be deeply hurt by somebody because I'm looking around and I'm making sure, but we are all human beings, right? We are all human beings. We all make mistakes. We all fail. I put my foot in my mouth more often than I care to count. And it hurts people's feelings sometimes. And I don't intend to, and I don't want to, and I'm not, I'm not out to hurt your feelings. I'm not out to make you angry. So let's give each other positive intent. Okay, first of all, let's just, just assume the best about each other. But the truth is there is no such thing as a, as a perfect church because every church is full of human beings. There are churches that look good on the outside. There are churches who have the coolest buildings, like our building. There are churches who have really good-looking pastors, like your pastor. There are churches that have really good-looking congregations, like this congregation, but they're not perfect. There's no such thing as the perfect church. In our culture, we church shop, don't we? We go from place to place, we're looking for the perfect church, and it does not exist. You will not find it this side of heaven but there are good churches. So that's just kind of an aside. That's the first thing I think Luke is trying to show with this passage. It's like, it's going great. Oh, until somebody lied because we had liars in the church. The second thing is this. The second lesson from this text is that God sees the inside. You can't fool him. We want to, but it turns out that in the world and in church, there are two kinds of people. The problem is you can't tell who is who. There are people that are true and real and in, full of integrity and whole and presenting themselves and who they are, and it's who, who they are is who they say they are, and there are people who are not, and we can't always tell who is who. This text actually compares two people, Barnabas, also known as Joseph, and Ananias and Sapphira. Okay, so it's three people. I'm bad at math. So it's comparing, though, the two sets, the married couple and the individual, and one, he is They've both done the same things, right? They've experienced the same stuff. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit. They've gone to church. They've seen the signs and wonders, all of the amazing things going on. They've experienced it. And they're both saying, yeah, we're selling stuff and we're giving it to the church to be used. But one says, everything that I have is yours, God. I'm giving you my yes. 
The other says, I'm giving you my yes, but I'm not giving you all my yes. And I want to keep some of it back for myself. And that's okay. God's not worried about that. What he is worried about is when that other person uses that opportunity to polish their image and to look good. To say, I am just as spiritual as Barnabas. To say, I am just as deep as the next guy. I am great. I'm like, look how awesome I am. Look at me. Barnabas isn't saying, look at me. He's just saying, yes, God. When I was a kid, we went, I had to walk to the bus all the time, every day. And I showed my family where, where the hill, there was this massive hill we had to walk up. And I walked to school in the snow uphill both ways. And, and so um, you know, we walk up the hill and we would cross the street and we'd stand at our bus stop in the snow. And I remember we got to the bus stop one day and there was this random jar there. It was a plastic tub about this big. It was huge. And uh, it, it was like, it said olives on the side of it. Hmm. Yeah, somebody goes, hmm. Just be forewarned, I'm about to tell you why I don't like olives. <laughs> So they're sitting there, and everybody's like, look, olives. And the other kids are like, I like olives. Let's eat the olives, which is not a good idea when you're in Alaska, and there's a, bo- a bottle of olives on the side of the road. Don't eat them. But they thought, let's open it up and take a look at these olives. And so we opened it up, and what it was was somebody who was living rough had used this as their toilet. This is why I hate olives. And that is what we see happening here, is that Beneath the surface of our lives, it's been used for something other than goodness, right? It's been used for something other than God's glory. And God cares about what is inside. See, we are all kind of like an iceberg. You've heard this analogy before because we talk about it all the time, right? We're icebergs. You see 10% of an iceberg floating around. They're huge. They're massive. But down below the surface is 90% of the iceberg. And what we do as human beings is we go around showing each other the best parts of that top 10% of the iceberg. But God is concerned more with the 90% that is beneath the surface. He wants to transform and change you in the deep inner parts of you. And the question becomes, what is deep beneath the surface of your life? What's down there? Is it olives? I'll just let it sit with the rest of that. The next thing I think that God wants us to see from this, and this is the good news, that God doesn't love us for what we do. I got a couple of like a no kidding and a hallelujah in the midst of that. And you guys, we talk about this. You could give me feedback in the middle of this. God doesn't love us for what we do. Amen. It's not our outward behavior that causes God to love you. And now it seems counterintuitive because they went and did a behavior and then they died, Right? See, well, God doesn't love us for what we do, but he apparently dislikes us for what we do. I think our culture really, I mean, Instagram, Facebook, and Snapchat, let's just talk about those three for a second. I'm not, I'm firmly in the Facebook camp. I am too old for Instagram. I try, and Snapchat is right out. I wish I could. I I need your help. Like, you could get me on these things and snap things. Emma takes my phone all the time. She's like, I'm updating your Instagram, Dad. I'm like, thanks. So we have this this system where we take pictures of what's going on in our life and we post them, right? We put them out there and it says, here's your Facebook story. Here's your Instagram story. Here's your Snapchat thing. I think it's a story. We confuse, as human beings, we confuse snaps for stories. 
We confuse a momentary image for the full story of somebody's life. We look and we say, wow, look at how amazing they are. I mean, if you looked at my Facebook from the last year, you'd be like, that guy is an adventure traveler. He is so amazing. He went to Alaska, climbed a mountain, and he hung out with people from Nigeria and Japan and worshiped God together. Oh, he's so amazing. And, and, but you know what? There's a lot of snaps of my life that you're missing out on. There's a lot of it, because it's not even just the snaps on the outside, right? My story is every snap that I have of every moment, inside and out. That is my, we are all a collection of snapshots, a whole lot of snapshots, snapshots that nobody sees or nobody knows, snapshots that if somebody saw them of you, they'd be like, why are you at church? Or they might be like, you need to be at church, man, Right? How many of you feel that way? Like, that's my life. Like, if you saw everything, you'd be amazed I'm here. Just look at the person and poke, poke them and say, it's amazing that I'm here. Oh, you can do it. It's okay. It's amazing that I'm here. And I'm a part of that. It is absolutely amazing that Jesus would love me. It is amazing that I am even here. Because if you look at the snaps of my life, you see that I try to present the best parts of myself to earn people's love. Because I'm a people pleaser. I want to act right. It's about image management, right? We all do this. We manage our image. We polish a performance to cover what is going on inside. And when we do that, what we are really doing is buying into a lie from Satan. And it is this, that what you do is more important than who you are. What you do is more important than who you are. I was sold that lie as a teenager. Oh, he preached at youth group. What a man of God. I just preached a sermon. I mean, I took a Bible passage. I, like, barbecued the thing. It made no sense, but youth kids just thought it was amazing. I was talking about being a gimp. I don't even know what that is. And it was like, he's so amazing. He sang a song. I sang a special at church. We don't even do this anymore. I sang a special in church, and people are like, oh, you just have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I'm like, yeah, I guess so, you know? And then I start buying into that and believe it. Believe that those things are true of me because my performance led other people to say that that's true of me. We, I began equating God's love with my action. And when I wasn't measuring, when my actions weren't measuring up, when, my, when the private actions of my life, when my thought life would change and shift. You know what I felt? Nothing but shame and guilt. And the Holy Spirit is all about breaking the power of shame and guilt in our lives. Amen? Amen. He is about breaking the power of shame and guilt in our lives. And so I bought that lie that what I did on the outside was way more important than who I was. But the truth is, this is God cares about me and loves me for who I am, not for what I do. Being a pastor does not make God love me anymore. You being a social worker or a college student or a single mom or a stay-at-home mom or a baseball player or whatever you happen to be does not make God love you anymore. You can't earn his love. You don't deserve his love, but still he chooses to love you. God loves us because he chooses to love us. It's just freely given. He doesn't choose us for what we do on the outside. You know, we got students in this room that have been told their whole life, you're so smart. You can do anything you want to do. You could be the next president. Please, be the next president. Somebody. <laughs> Sorry, I went political there for a second. Whew. Jesus, forgive me. 
Students, you've been believed for so long that you, know, you just kind of take on this persona, being smart and amazing, especially as you move to grad school and to get a PhD. You specialize in knowing everything about the smallest little thing. You know like everything about one thing and nothing about everything else. You are so smart and you carry as part of your identity, I am smart. And I'm going to show you how smart I am. You ever encountered one of those people? So smart, they, talk to, they, they just love to talk about that one thing they know everything about until you feel really stupid. I, oh. Being smart does not make you more lovable by God. Some of you are good workers. You work hard. You work six, seven days a week. You get up in the morning and you go to work and you work hard. And then people are like, good job. You are such a great worker. I am so glad you were part of my company. I'm so glad that you put in the time and the effort and you take that in and like, yeah, I am a good worker. That's my identity. I am a good worker. God doesn't love you for being a good worker. He loves you because you were you. Now, you can put any of those identity pieces that we choose from life where people, they look at our best parts and they make them shiny and they glorify them and they say, you are awesome. But we can think that God loves us more because of that thing. And so we take it into church and we use it. I'm a hard worker, so I'm going to hard work at church. I'm smart. I'm going to be a smart person at church. God loves me more for these things. It's not true. God loves you because he chooses to. He chooses you freely. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. God just loves you. Rest in that and allow him to love you. But now you're asking, okay, God sees my insides. <laughs> How can he still love me? I'm kind of feeling exposed right now, Pastor Jamie. Yeah, you've made me chuckle with you know, olive jars and things like that. But right now I'm feeling kind of unsafe because I feel like you've said the inside of my life may not match the outside of my life. And I feel like if I start showing people, God might kill me. <laughs> feel unsure, and it doesn't really look like God loves Ananias and Sapphira. They're dead. Let me assuage your fear just a little bit. Integrity is not about performing perfectly. It's not about, I believe inside that life should look like this, so outside I live this way. It's admitting that I am an imperfect, broken human being and being honest about it. God isn't looking for perfection. He's looking for honesty. Can I say that again? God does not want perfection from you. He wants honesty. The church doesn't need people who are perfect. It needs people who are honest. And that's the moral of this story. It's honesty. Last week I told you that you cannot give what you do not have, right? You can't give some spiritual experience that you have not had. You can't lead somebody into a growth uh, in the, in the Father that, that you haven't already gone through. You can't give away what you don't have. And that would make this really awkward for me because I am an imperfect, broken human being. You know, we, in the culture, we like, we like this word of affirmation. You guys like that word, affirmation? It feels really nice when we say it. Isaac the other day asked me, he said, I saw a church with a sign that had the LGBTQ flag on it. It said, LGBTQ people are welcome here. Are we going to put that on our church? And I said, well, Jesus absolutely loves LGBTQ people. Absolutely. And they are welcome here. They are welcome here. But when that flag goes out there, what that says is, I affirm your behavior. 
And God doesn't affirm every behavior that we choose. In fact, if you were to look inside my life, you would not affirm every behavior that I choose. If you could hear my brain on Monday afternoon, you'd be like, Pastor Jamie, what a mess. And I'm just like, oh, that person in the road. And I'm like angry or I'm bitter or these things are coming out of me and God's working them out. And he's like, look at that, Jamie, we need to work on that. I'm like, yeah, you wouldn't affirm all my choices and thoughts and decisions. God does not affirm all of our choices and thoughts and decisions, but he loves us anyway. He's not looking for us to be perfect. He's looking for us to be honest. He is looking for us to let the inside be worked to the outside and to be truthful with what's going on inside of the insides of our life. So I can't give you what I don't have. I can't give you perfection. You can't give the person next to you perfection. You are a broken person, just like I am a broken person. I'm a broken person who desperately loves Jesus, who desperately wants to give him my yes, who sometimes says, yes, Lord, no. Yes, Lord, no. Yes, Lord, whoa, that's a lot. Don't know if I can go there yet, Jesus. And he's like, oh, come on, follow me. I'm an imperfect, broken person who desperately loves Jesus and desperately needs your grace. And you are a broken person who I hope desperately loves Jesus and is desperately falling in love with Jesus who desperately needs grace because we can't be perfect. Now, I'm not saying don't try. I'm not saying don't try because the Bible is actually never opposed to our effort. You ever, where do we get this idea that God's grace is opposed to our efforts? Just stop trying. That's not how this works. God is never opposed to our effort. He's just opposed to us trying to earn his love. He's not opposed to us stepping into a Bible study to start learning what the Bible says and trying to apply it to our lives. He's not opposed to us taking a class like Emotionally Healthy Spirituality where we go deep beneath the iceberg of our life and start exposing areas that God desperately wants to heal. He can't, we can't have a healing in a place that we're unaware. He wants to expose this stuff. God desperately loves us and wants to work in those places. That's what God is after, a church that is not concerned with the outside look. It's not concerned with the hot take. It's not concerned with being culturally relevant in order to just reach people, but who loves him deeply, desperately, and is broken and vulnerable before him and before one another and before the world around it because then we're suddenly not open to criticism anymore. I'm not a hypocrite. I'm a hot mess. (laughs) I'm a hot mess who's just living in grace and who's trying my best to walk in the fullness of God's love. It's not my effort that does this. I'm just pressing in and I'm letting God's strength shine in my weakness. Because God loves us despite our inward mess, we can live honestly and vulnerably with each other and with him. That's why we can walk in repentance. His mercy leads us to repentance, not his judgment. That's why we sang that song this morning. Your mercy triumphs over judgment. I can walk in that mercy, and it leads me to repent and say, God, I am not who I say I am. I am not who I want to be. Help me to walk in integrity. So yes, be nice on Monday. Be kind. Be generous. Do your best. Try not to be nasty. Please, for my sake, (laughs) for Jesus' sake, struggle to be nice. Struggle to not be grouchy, but be honest. I'm giving, but this is hard. 
I'm being kind to you. Maybe don't say this to the person you're trying to be kind to because that wouldn't be very nice, right? But be honest with yourself. Be honest with somebody else. There's this person at work. They're hard for me. Jesus wants to love them and I don't know how. Will you pray for me? Because there's a power in prayer. We've learned that from the book of Acts, amen? I am just doing the best I can with what I got and I am allowing the Holy Spirit to fill in the gaps. The last thing that we can learn from this, and I want to be quick in this, is that this issue of integrity, of vulnerability and brokenness, walking in the brokenness of who we are with one another and with God, it's a deadly serious issue. It is deadly serious. The death in this is the hardest part to handle. And again, it's not normative, and it doesn't line up with what Jesus teaches. But it is deadly serious, and it shows us that there is a battleground for the land beneath the surface of our icebergs. There is a battleground for the space where God is working in us below what everybody sees, where he wants to deeply change us and transform us. Now, again, I talked about the words in Luke and Acts. In the book of Luke and Acts, there's this word filled, and it is used over and over again. And primarily, it's used for with the Spirit. So in, in uh, the very beginning of the book of Luke, the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, and it says he fills her, and she conceives. And then later you see Mary meeting her cousin Elizabeth when she's pregnant. Both of them are pregnant. And it says the Holy Spirit fills Elizabeth. The baby moves in her stomach, and then she is prompted to worship. And then Jesus goes out, and he is baptized, and the Holy Spirit falls on him like a dove, and he is filled with the Spirit. And then you go to the book of Acts, and people are filled with the Spirit over and over again. But twice it is used in a negative sense. The first time is with Judas. Judas, his heart is filled by Satan with a desire to betray the Christ. And then with Ananias and Sapphira. Why has Satan filled your heart so that you would lie? The question then becomes, what are we filling this deep beneath the surface area of our lives with? We're like this sponge, and it's going to soak up stuff. So what are we sitting in? What are we marinating in? Who is filling the deep spaces of our lives? God wants to fill you with his spirit. And as he does, he wants to redeem you. That means to buy back that which has been stolen. He wants to restore you, which means to put back the things that have been broken. He wants to make you whole so that you can wholeheartedly love your neighbor and wholeheartedly love him. This is what the Lord is after. It's the word shalom in the Old Testament. It means peace, wholeness. All the pieces are in right order. God wants to work that in you. But Satan, it said, comes to steal, kill, and destroy, which is exactly what you see in Acts chapter 5. He has come in and stolen something. They experienced the Holy Spirit. They'd seen his power. But they were filled with this desire for others to see them a certain way, and that desire filled them, and that desire is from Satan, and it ended up destroying them and even killing them. When we see God's judgment throughout Scripture, we don't see God coming and squashing. What we see is God removing himself from sin. Genesis chapter 1, or chapter 2, he says, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. Is this like a prescription? I don't know. They, they go, they eat the tree, do they surely die? Eventually they do die. But what happens is they get cast out of the garden. God removes himself from their sin. The book of Ezekiel, 
we see this crazy image of a, a wheel within a wheel and all kinds of chariots and stuff, and it's outside the temple, and God comes out of the temple where everybody worships him. He gets on the chariot, and Elvis leaves the building, right? God removes himself from the people of Israel in the book of Ezekiel, and what happens to the people of Israel is they get sacked. So we see Ananias and Sapphira filled with this sin, and God removes himself, and they die. Because God is the only thing keeping us alive. God is the only reason that we can walk. He, in him we live and we move and we have our being. That's what the scripture says. And God removes himself. So the question is, what are you filled with? What are you filling your life with? What are you marinating in? What are you soaking in? That's the question that I want to sit with you for a moment. I want to take a moment of silence. I want to let the Holy Spirit speak. I know he's been speaking all along. You've probably got a sermon that I didn't even preach because that's the way it works. But we're going to take a moment, one minute, where I shut up and the Holy Spirit just has free reign to speak to you. Maybe he wants to ask you any number of questions, but what are you marinating in is the question I'm asking you. Let's take one minute of silence and let the Holy Spirit speak. This morning, with um, just every head bowed and eyes closed, I, I, I don't want to expose anybody this morning, okay? Um, I don't want to expose anybody. This is the Holy Spirit's place, and he wants to work deep beneath the surface of your life. So let's just remain with our eyes closed in this attitude of prayer. When I talked about that you are loved for who you are this morning, I just sensed in the room that there were some people that were like, I don't buy that. <laughs> Or maybe I do buy it, but I don't feel it. And God this morning just really wants to speak a word of his love over you, um, his, his desire for you, that you can't earn his love, and he doesn't want you to earn it. He just wants to give it to you freely. And that's you this morning. You're just in this place. I need a word of God's love for my life. Would you just raise your hand this morning? Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah. There's no shame in this. I just need a word of God's love. I need to know that this is true. Anybody else? I feel like there was somebody else. All right, well, you don't have to raise your hand because God loves you anyway. You can't earn it. So, Jesus, I just pray that you would just pour out your love right now on these few who have raised their hands that just need that to know that you love them despite the snapshots of their life. God, I pray this morning that we would learn to walk in integrity which doesn't mean to walk perfectly, but to walk honestly. And with our brokenness on our shoulders, our sleeves, just allowing people to see us as human beings and not as puppets and not as performers, as people being deeply transformed by your love. Jesus, we ask for this in your name. Amen. 
we hold things so tight. And I think Jesus is just inviting us in his love and in his grace and in his safety to repent, to just turn things over. God, I've been hiding. I've been not showing you things. I've been not showing others things. I've not been honest. And I just want to walk in the fullness, and I want to love wholeheartedly. So as we sing all to Jesus, I surrender, would you just lift up those things to God and just say, Jesus, I surrender that to you. Help me to walk in vulnerability. Help me to walk in brokenness. Help me to be who I am on the inside, on the outside, and to give you my best and to walk in your strength for the rest. Jesus, that is just our prayer this morning. Your heart is all we want. May we walk from this place in your grace and your mercy, knowing that you love us deeply and truly. That we are loved by you, not for what we do, but for who you are and because you've chosen us. Help us to walk in that chosenness. May your spirit fill us now, not just with your grace and mercy, but with your power, so that we may walk out what you have called us to, that you fill us with your spirit to empower us to do everything that you call us to do. So we give you ourselves, we give you our lives, and we want to walk in mercy and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So what this means, folks, is you no longer have to make a pretend Christian journey. You can have a real, live, deep one, and you can be honest with who you are. Go in the grace of our Lord knowing that he loves you, and Heidi and I do too. In Jesus' name, amen.